morning, everybody. How y'all doing this morning? Y'all, y'all ready to, to dig in and to dive in today? Um, if you've got a Bible, I want you to grab your Bible and open it to Acts chapter 4. We are in um, Acts, um, not like the deodorant, but A-C-T-S, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, which really could be titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit that's doing the work. Book of Acts in chapter 4, we're going to look at a specific passage today that I believe will be encouraging and I believe that will be a little bit um, challenging for all of us, including uh, myself. By the way, um, did you enjoy Pastor Chris last week and the sermon that he brought to us last week? It was awesome, brother. Man, it's so so good to have him as a part of our church and one of our uh, teaching pastors with myself. It was awesome. Absolutely love you, brother. Love that you guys are here. They moved in yesterday into their home in Wilmington. They are officially Wilmingtonians, and so uh, give them some love today. You'll see Eric and I'm sure the girls a little bit later, uh, but we are glad that you are here, brother. So the goal of our series, we're in this series in the middle of the summer. Happy August, by the way. In this series called Life in Order. Somebody say Life in Order. Life in order, and my hope and my desire and really the goal is that each of us would have a new order to the way in which we live, that the order of our lives, that the practices and the patterns and the rhythms of our lives would be indicative of Christ and who he is, following him in alignment with him rather than in alignment with our culture. And the goal of the series is to take a hard look at our culture and a hard look at Christ and ask the hard question, Does my life look more like culture, more like the culture, or more like Christ? I know it's a hard question. It's a personal question. It's a challenging question. As Christians, we are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, apprentices of Jesus, and it is our mandate to become Christ-like. You know, the first time um, followers of Jesus were actually called Christians was back in the first century in the city of Antioch. You can find this in Acts chapter 11. And the term there meant little Christs. They called the disciples, they called the followers of Jesus, little Christs. Because they were essentially like little Jesus running around the world, acting like Jesus, living like Jesus, doing the things of Jesus. And so they called them Christians. And throughout this series, we have addressed cultural realities like busyness and striving, speed, ambition, projects. We've addressed things that are true of our culture, and I've tried to say, hey, hey, let's not get too tied up. Let's not get too carried away in the things of the world, in our culture. Let's not get too far off alignment of what Christ and what God's kingdom is and to be too comfortable and too similar to uh, the kingdom of this World And each week we've analyzed an aspect of our culture and then overlaid that aspect with an aspect of Christ. And so today we address the topic of, you've all been waiting for it, capitalism. Today we address the topic of capitalism and my title for the sermon today is Commonality Over Capitalism. At this point in the sermon you all have warm fuzzies because you were anticipating and waiting and longing for the day where you would be able to hear a sermon on this. Now, before we get too far along, let me address a few people in the room. 
uh, to try to help us understand kind of where I'm coming from and where my baseline is for the sermon today and the text. We're going to get to the text, a little bit of a lengthy introduction before we dive into the text today. Three people I want to address today. Number one, the first person is the patriot. The patriot. You love America. You love America. You might even be known to say America from time to time. You are as patriotic as the day is long. You believe this is the greatest country in the history of humanity. You love the 4th of July. You love the flag. You love the anthem. You love this country, perhaps even to the death. You may have even served this country or are serving this country in some capacity. So understandably, you bleed, and not only red, but red, white, and blue. Please know that we love you. We love you, and you are always welcome here. But if you are a Christian, let me go ahead and alert you to the possibility that your allegiance might be to the wrong kingdom. There's nothing wrong with loving your country. There's nothing wrong with finding some pride in your country. But if your identity is too wrapped up in the kingdom of this world, then you won't be able to operate like you should in the kingdom of God. As Christians, our Independence Day happened 2,000 years ago. And the flag is the cross, and our anthem is the gospel. And the stripes we hold dear are the stripes of Christ that bought our true freedom. And my role, whether I like it or not, is to be a prophet that warns you not to get too comfortable in Babylon because this isn't our home. The second person, the second person to address is the conservative. The conservative. You are principled. You have values. You believe morals are the fabric of human society and that everyone, if everyone just lived right, the world would be a better place. You believe that the country was much better off a few decades ago, and if we could just get back to the good old days, everything would be much better. You believe in hard work. You believe people should be rewarded based on their duty and effort. You love the American dream. You think people should just pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and make a life for themselves. You think that if someone is successful, they earned it. You believe everything you have is due you because you worked hard for what you've got. You believe that if the government just got out of the way, we would be much better off. Please know that we love you, and you are always welcome here. But if you are a Christian, let me go ahead and alert you to the possibility that your identity might be tied up in the American way rather than the Jesus way. Let's just tap the brakes a little. Let's just tap the brakes and reconsider whether or not some of our conservative values are actually biblical. You might be successful, but let's be careful before you start patting yourself on the back and act like if it was your own fortitude that got you where you are. Let's be careful to act like the system that worked out for you works out for all. Let's make sure we're being more dis or discipled rather by the lamb than the elephant. Let's make sure our hope is not in a president but in a savior. And then the third person. The third person is the liberal. The liberal. You believe in liberation. You believe in equality. You believe in justice. You're thinking, is he going to offend everyone? Yes. You believe in justice. You think the system is rigged and that it always has been. You think there's too much disparity. You think the people at the top got there by walking over the people at the bottom. You believe power corrupts. You think for too long, 
people have been held back. You believe people should be liberated to be who they are. You think others shouldn't impose their views on others. You want the future, definitely not the past. You think the system needs to change and start working for everyone, not just a select few. Please know we love you. We love you, and you are always welcome here. But if you're a Christian, let me go ahead and alert you to the possibility that your identity might be too tied up in earthly realities rather than heavenly realities. Let's be cautious in thinking that our self-expression and freedom can save us. Let's not look to the government for what can only be found in Christ. Let's not focus only on governmental responsibility while we also need to recognize personal responsibility. Let's tap the brakes a little and reconsider whether your hope is anchored in systemic outcomes rather than salvific outcomes. Be careful how much assurance you put in an ideology over Christology. We may see change come now, but this isn't our final destination. We're merely exiles in a foreign land. So with that being said, I'm not a socialist or a capitalist. I'm not a conservative or a liberal. I'm not right or left. I'm not tied up to a donkey or an elephant. I'm tied up to Jesus. I'm a Christian. I am a Christ follower, and I take my cues from him, not anyone else. Now, with that being said, our culture, America, is a capitalistic society, a quasi-capitalistic society, not purely capitalistic, but close nonetheless. What is capitalism? Capitalism is an economic system characterized by private or corporate ownership of capital goods that are determined mainly by competition in a free market. Capital means wealth. That is money and goods that, that's used to produce more wealth. Capitalism is practiced enthusiastically by capitalists, people who use capital to increase production and make more goods and money. Capitalism works by encouraging competition in an open market. Now, in the age-old philosophical sociological debate, which, by the way, I'm not a philosopher or a sociologist. I'm a theologian, so I'm going to try to stick with theology today. In the age-old philosophical sociological debate, when it comes to the relationship between the individual and society, capitalism leans towards the side of the society existing for the good of the individual rather than the individual existing for the good of society. In capitalism, the prosperity of the individual reigns supreme. So here's, here's what we have to do as Christians. Like if, if we lived in a different country and if we lived in a different context and different culture, I would do the same thing for that culture. This is the culture, this is the climate, this is the context in which we live. So as Christians, here's what we have to do. There are some tenets of capitalism that seem to follow biblical principles, but capitalism in and of itself is a social construction. For the Christian to get in bed with capitalism can be disastrous and can lead to great evils, similar to slavery and oppression and walking over others for the sake of your own prosperity. As Christians, we are obviously citizens of the kingdom of this world, but we are primarily citizens of the kingdom of God. And to use the language of the great African early church father, Augustine, Christians live in the city of God first and the city of man second. What that means is that we have to do some hard work. 
what that means is that we have to do some heavy lifting and ask ourselves um, where our lives are aligned with the kingdom of this world and where they are aligned with the kingdom of God. So we look at scripture and we try to use scripture for the baseline, for the way in which we should function in the way that we should operate as members and citizens of the kingdom of God first before kingdom uh, citizens of the kingdom of this world. Are you with me? You're like, that was nuts. All right, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. This is what we see. It reads this way, Acts 4, 32. Now, the full number of those who believe, these are believers, these are Christians, these are Jesus followers, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Somebody say one. One. This is crazy. Every believer, every Christian, every stinking church member, they were of one heart and one soul. This is crazy. This is unthinkable. This is amazing. They're of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Somebody say common. Everything in common. Let me give you a little bit of a con context. This is the book of Acts in the New Testament. This is um, just after this is just a few years removed from the life of Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, after his life, death, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven. This is now Jesus has ascended back into heaven. The church is on mission, empowered with the Holy Spirit, operating the way that God has instructed them to operate. This is the early church. This is the first church. This is the first generation church. And what we're reading today is the most authentic expression of the church after Christ. In some ways... You could say this is the most um, unadulterated version of Christianity, what we see in the book of Acts. It doesn't mean that they're perfect, but it means at their essence, they are following what could be perhaps the most authentic expression of Christianity. Now, let me do a little bit of, um, before we go any, little, any further, let me just press the brakes real quick because this is important. In, in Bible interpretation, there is um, something referred to as um, prescriptive texts. And descriptive text, or you could say um, prescriptive Bible verses or descriptive Bible verses. It's, it's basically what it sounds like. Prescriptive texts are prescribing commands and lifestyles and practices of us. They're prescribing. It's, it's, it's commands. Do this. Don't do this. You shall do this. You shall not do this. It's explicit. They're universal. They are prescribed for everyone. They're prescribed for the church. I love one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is a prescriptive text that is prescribing a way in which we should function, a way we should operate. Now, in addition to prescriptive text, there are descriptive texts. Descriptive texts aren't prescribing commands of what you must do. It's, they're rather describing things that happened. So these would be stories. These would be narratives. These would be certain situations where we are reading and we are getting an inside look on the church and the way that they function and the way they operate. It's simply describing what had happened. All right, so in the Old Testament, um, Elijah, with the prophets of Baal, he builds a uh, huge altar, digs a ditch around it. He, con he confronts the, the prophets of Baal to a little bit of a duel, a spiritual duel. Um, Elijah wins. Uh, they lose. Lightning literally comes down from heaven, lights the altar on fire. It's amazing. It would be a great movie. That's a descriptive text that's simply describing to us something that happened. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't learn anything from it. Obviously, you learn things from it, but it's a descriptive text rather than a prescriptive text. Are you with me? Are you with me? 
Okay, good. This, what we're looking at today is, and this, I need to be clear here, is a descriptive text. It is describing for us what the early church did, their function, their way of operating. It isn't necessarily prescribing everything in here, but it is rather describing what they did and what they were doing. So this is what is happening. This is describing what is happening. There's no explicit teaching of Jesus in the scriptures where all believers are required to consider their personal possessions and property as belonging to the whole community, the Christian community. But what we see here, I love this, is a, it's the natural reaction and the natural response to the gospel of these early Christians. These early Christians are lost as a goose. They don't know Jesus. They don't understand God. They don't know what the gospel is. They don't know what it means to follow Jesus. They don't understand the Bible. They don't understand any of that thing, any of that. Jesus shows up, teaches them the way, the way, the truth, and the life, reveals who he is, that he is the son of God come to save them. They understand that. They believe that. They give their lives to Jesus. They begin to follow him, and it changes everything. And what we see here is the natural reaction or the natural response to them being changed by what Jesus has done. They're just like operating and living and like, Jesus has changed me. They show up in a moment in the circumstance, they're like, we should do that. That'd be a great idea. If Jesus did this for us, then we should do that. It's just their normal reaction and their response to the gospel message that has changed them. So what is the gospel? The gospel is, you could say, the mantra of the kingdom of God, that the world is broken, that the world is jaded. Look yesterday in El Paso. The world is falling apart. The world is twisted. That's why there's death and hate and evil. But God has come to make all things right in Jesus Christ. That Jesus, the Son of God, became a man. Jesus actually lived an unbroken, sinless life, but took on the sin of the world. And in so doing, he defeated his arch rival. He conquered death, and he offers a new way, a new beginning, a new kingdom, a new life to any and all who would trust him and follow him with their life. And this is the gospel. When the gospel gets a hold of someone and reaches them, there's a spiritual renovation that happens in the heart. And from that new heart flows all sorts of things, a new identity, a new joy, a new love, a new peace that's unlike anything the world has ever seen. It's like Christians have found a medicine from another world that if taken produces in them, in them nothing that the world can offer. I'll say it this way. Here's our first point. Everything the gospel touches, it changes. Everything the gospel touches, it changes. One of the ways you know you've experienced the gospel is you're changed. I remember the first time that I traveled internationally. I know that some of you have traveled internationally. We have a heart as a church to not just be, when we say for the city, we not just mean our city, we mean all cities, for the city, for the cities of the world. Our mission is a global mission. We traveled internationally. I remember the very first time I traveled internationally on an international short-term mission trip for one week to the country of Costa Rica. I remember being a young, a young kid um, only understanding South Carolina. 
growing up in South Carolina, un- only understanding America, only understanding the American way, under- only understanding the way in which we operate. And I remember going to Costa Rica, which is an underprivileged, underserved country in Central America, and I just remember being shocked by what I saw. I, I, remember, I remember everyone seemed to honk when they drove on the highway. I didn't understand why every single person honked. Everybody honked. There's, like, there's not many red lights. Uh, there, there aren't many street signs and stuff. You just honk is the way that you get around. If you want to turn, you honk. If you want to come up on someone, you honk. The way that you communicate, I think it's a love language in Costa Rica. You just honk your horn as the way in which you travel. And I remember going and experiencing that. I remember experiencing some of the poverty. I remember experiencing some of the poverty, some of the kind of underserved, underprivileged conditions of that country and, and, and realizing how awesome I had it. Like, feeling terrible that I had ever complained about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, thinking and recognizing that I have a refrigerator that at any time I can go into and open, and there's food inside. Like, wow, I, I remember this. I remember going and seeing houses where, I mean, it's literally a, a tin roof and cardboard walls and a dirt floor, and there's like eight people living in this little thing. And I remember coming back and being changed. You can't go there and, and not be changed. It's, it's similar with the gospel. You can't actually experience the gospel and, and not be changed. And, and it's only exponentially increases what my experience was in Costa Rica. The experience is 100 times greater than that. If you were actually lost and didn't know God and helpless and hopeless and a sinner, and knew that you couldn't save yourself, and knew that you couldn't get to God, and you heard the message of the gospel that God loves you, and that he came for you, and that he actually gave his life for you to take on all of your sin, and all of your shame, and to give you his righteousness, and to bring you into his family, and to adopt you, and to make you his son or his daughter, it changes you. It just changes you. Everything the gospel touches, it changes. And this is why I'm a church kid. This is why I have a lot of sympathy for church kids. Because you kind of grew up in this. And if you didn't have a wild life, if you didn't go off and do this in college or go do this, you're like, this is just kind of the only thing that you've known. And you're like, I don't know if I've ever been changed. See, the thing about the gospel, this this thing is why why I have such a a passion for church kids and people that grew up in the church and people that grew up in this kind of environment is to truly understand the gospel, not to just to be inoculated with the gospel, but actually experience it and know it for themselves. Because everything the gospel touches, it, it, it changes. So my question for you today, before we go any further, is have you ever been changed by the gospel? In the depths of your soul, today, answer the question, have you ever been changed by the gospel? Religion can't do what the gospel can. Church membership can't do what the gospel can. Only the gospel can change you from the inside out. And when the gospel gets in, it it wrecks everything. It messes you up. Tell your neighbor, it messes you up. It messes you up. 
It, it just changes the fabric of your identity. It changes the fabric of your existence. It, it gives you new categories. It gives you new paradigms and new ways of thinking in the world that you didn't have prior. And here's what we see. Here's what happens when the gospel changes this community. The first thing that we see is that they were one. They were one. They had unity. These are all sorts of different kinds of people. But they're like, you love Jesus? I love Jesus. We're brothers and sisters now. High five. Let's bring it in for a hug. I love you. Wow. We're both Christians. That's amazing. We're now family. We're family. They have a new unity. They have a new oneness together. And the radical fruit we see the gospel producing in this community is unity. The full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. I'll say this. In the gospel, many become one. In the gospel, many become one. If you are a follower of Jesus here today, we are one. Believe this. I am for you. I'm for you. I will help you. I will love you. I will support you. I will pray for you. I have limited bandwidth and limited resources, but whatever I do have, I will do my best to love you and care for you and support you because we're one now. We're one. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what country you are from. I don't care what your ethnic identity is or what social status you fall into. We're now one. We got the gospel. We're family together. Now, now what I have is yours and what you have is mine. We're one together. We now have oneness together. I think about it. makes me think about, um, I, I, I see Sean Bynum, and he's posting these pictures on, on Instagram of him and his uh, uh, fraternity brothers. All right. And um, I believe it's... Um, I believe it's in Alpha Phi Alpha, I believe, is the name of the fraternity. And these guys are like, they're like bros, you know? I mean, they're like, they're like to the death. I'm like, they like got like matching jackets on. I'm like, how do they get matching jackets? And they got like special code language together and like signs and like handshakes and stuff. And like, I'm like, what is going on here? This is what's interesting about a fraternity. It brings people that, who, regardless of where they are from, regardless of what their past is, it brings them together, and they now have a shared identity. They're part of the same fraternity. And now whatever they used to be or whatever their occupation is or whatever their background is, they now have something. They have a solidarity together. They have a unity together that trumps all that other stuff. And so they're bros until the death. That, we should make that look horrible in the kind of unity that we have. We should have a level of oneness that makes that look puny compared to the kingdom of God, compared to the church. We should have matching jackets. Should we have matching jackets? I think that we should have, maybe we should have matching jackets with some patches on the arms, on the sleeves, on the back. I'm down for that. We need to get a new line item in the budget for matching jackets for members of the Bridge Church. Um, but there's a, there's a, y'all, there is a unity, there's a, there's a solidarity, there's a oneness that, that we now share as people of, we're gospel people now. It doesn't mean we're the same. It doesn't mean we're the same. It just means we're one. I am very different than my wife. Very different, but we're one. All right? And all her stuff that I love and all of her stuff that I don't love and all of the stuff that's who she is or what she is or this that's different than me that I don't get and I don't understand, I don't care because we're one. Our oneness trumps all the other stuff because we have a oneness uh, together. And in the gospel, many become one. We become one. Now, notice the kind of unity 
and oneness they shared. This is where it gets really uncomfortable. You're like, it was already uncomfortable, you think. Um, here's, here's where it gets uncomfortable. This is the kind of unity and oneness they shared. It says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that they belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Everybody say common. Not to be confused with a comedian. They had everything in common. They shared everything together. They had things in common. This is the Greek word koinos. It's a Greek word koinos. It's, it, 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 can, it can be expressed in several different ways. It can be expressed in a legal relationship of having things in common. It can be expressed in ownership together of having common ownership. It can be also expressed in a marriage relationship where there is common property shared between the marriage relationship. It means common ownership of equal parts of multiple parties. Here's what's crazy. This word uh, koinos, it's translated common, is actually the root for where we get the word fellowship. You know this maybe if you've been in church for a long time, but the Greek word for fellowship is the word koinonia. It comes from the word koinos. So fellowship at its root is the essence of having commonality together. How many of y'all grew up in church? You grew, how many of y'all had a fellowship hall in your church building when you grew up? I'm like, what is a fellowship hall? I don't understand what a fellowship hall is. Um, I, by the way, um, I kind of miss the fellowship hall, if I'm going to be honest. kind of miss the fellowship hall. Um, I, miss, I miss the potlucks. Um, just for the record, I am pro-potlucks. Um, I, miss, I, miss, I miss that. Um, but we had a fellowship hall, which I just thought at the meant, it meant that that's a place that we go to hang out with other Christians and eat good food. At the core of true fellowship isn't just hanging out together and having a potluck together at the church. At the core of true fellowship, koinonia, is that we have a commonality among one another and we operate with that commonality together. We'll see this as well. You could bump up a few chapters earlier, Acts chapter 2. I'll put it on the screens for you. Acts 2, 42 through 44, it says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, koinonia, to the breaking of bread and the prayers all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in, look at it, common. It's the word koinos. Here's what this means. Christianity isn't merely a new kind of beliefs, though it is, it's a new kind of belonging. Christianity isn't merely a new kind of beliefs, it's a new kind of belongings. If you think that Christianity is just a new kind of beliefs, then you'll show up to church and hear a sermon in order to get those new beliefs and then leave and live your life at, on your own. But if you believe that Christianity is not just a set of new kind of beliefs, but a new kind of belonging, then you come, and this just isn't an educational experience, but this is actually a community that you belong to. You with me? Koinonia, koinos. There is commonality together. They have oneness. Now look with, it, look with me at this. It, verse 33, it says, Acts 4.33, And with great power, I love this, the apostles were giving their testimony. These are the leaders of the church giving their testimony, testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which is the gospel. And great grace was upon them all. In response to this radical unity that the church shared, in response to this commonality and this oneness that the church shared, the church experienced great power as a fruit of their unity. Power doesn't come from a great preacher. Power doesn't come from great programs. Power comes when the people of God are unified together 
through the Spirit of God, and he works in and through them in around them. I'll say it this way. Power is always the product of unity. Power is always the product of unity. You know, you can have 12 horses, and you can tie a rope to each of them and try to connect them all and tell them to go. You got 12 horses, but just merely a rope actually won't be able to accomplish much. They'll go in various different directions, run in circles, won't know how to go together. One will be fighting against the other. They actually won't make any progress. But if you take 12 horses and unify them, yoke them together, harness them together so that they are moving in the same direction, there is unprecedented power that comes when they are all unified together. Are you with me? Unity is one of the most powerful weapons of the church. There's no limit to a church that is unified. This is why the scripture is always rebuking gossip and division in the church. Because it's antithetical to unity. If you are practicing gossip and division, speaking negatively about others in the church with others in the church, speaking negatively about church leadership with others in the church, you are single-handedly sucking the life and power out of the church. Sucking it out. And over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, Paul and the other apostles are like, stop it. Knock it out. That's not how we do things. That's not how we work. Yes, you may have challenges. Yes, you may have disagreements. But that isn't unity. That's not how we work. We are together. We are one. And when the church is one, it's unstoppable. It's so significant that Paul would even tell the church leader Titus this in Titus 3, 10, and 11. He says this. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That's like varsity level right there. If you were caught practicing gossip and division in the church, and we confront you about it, strike one. And you do it again, and we confront you about it, strike two. The Bible compels me and commands me to have nothing more to do with you, knowing that you are warped and sinful. That's how significant this is. Well, Ethan, I'm not sleeping around with anybody. I'm not doing this. You are taking the power out of the church, sucking it out. That's why we got to be unified. That's why we got to be together. Unity doesn't mean that we're all the same. Unity doesn't mean that we always agree. Unity, unity means that we are one and we're together and we're moving in the same direction. And then we're going to figure out our stuff. We're going to figure out our challenges. We're going to figure out our differences as we go and as we move together in unity. They were one. Then he says this in verse 34. Acts 4, 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. That's crazy. And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, they give a little cred to Joseph here. If you read further in Acts chapter 5, you'll see someone that didn't do it well, Ananias and Sapphira. But he gives a positive example here in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. This guy was well-to-do. He sold a field. This guy, like, owned real estate. He was like a baller in the early church. He sold a field, land. 
Probably that maybe even belonged to his family for decades, for generations. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's what's remarkable about this descriptive passage. Nobody was needy in the early church. Fundamentally different, very different. Healthcare system was a little different than now. Insurance was a little different than now. Your healthcare was the church. Your insurance was the church. Your assistance was the church. It was the community. The early Christians weren't okay with living in luxury while their brothers or sisters in Christ suffered. The early church or the early Christians saw what they possessed as existing for the good of God's people. They saw themselves and their resources as God's design for helping others that were around them. I'll say it this way. God's means of meeting the needs of his people is, guess what, his people. You're like, but I thought, like, God, like, dropped checks from heaven, you know, that landed on your doorstep miraculously. And I've heard of stories that have happened like, like that. But God's primary means of meeting the needs of his people is his people. Through the community. Through us. I love the way that J.D. Greer says it. He says it this way. God blesses us not primarily to increase our standard of living, but to increase our standard of giving. Your resources, your wealth, the things that God has put in your hands exist for his kingdom. Y'all, this earth is going to waste away. You're only here for a little while. It's like a vacation from eternity. You're only going to be here for a little while. Your resources exist for the kingdom of God. And guess what? If you try to use them for your own kingdom, you won't get that either. Because it doesn't work that way. The life that you were meant to live, the abundant life, the joyful life, the greatest life that you could ever live is when you recognize that everything that you possess, everything that belongs to you actually belongs to God. And that God has placed it in your hands for the good of his kingdom. That's what I love about Joseph. I mean, literally, they like show up to church one Sunday, and somebody, the apostle or somebody, there's like, hey, guys, we got a family. Um, they are in need. Their house just burned down. They lost everything. And um, they don't have anywhere to stay. They got significant needs. And so we got to figure something out. And the guy, Joseph, Joseph is like, huh, there's a need. There's a family. I got property. I got real estate. It's not really doing much, just sitting there. But maybe God has given me that in order to meet this need over here. So Joseph's like raises his hand up in the back. Hey, um, I got, I got a field, um, and land and property. I'll go to the city gates tomorrow morning. We'll sell that joker, and then we'll help this family in eat, and they'll be fine. And they're like, great idea, done. All right, we're done with that one. All right, next one, next one. All right, now the next issue. It's just like natural. It's just like he recognized, Joseph recognized that his life and his passion, his priority existed for God and God's kingdom and not for his own kingdom. Can I tell you this? Can I just like, let's just do brass tacks real quick. The greatest life you will ever live is a life that's devoted to the kingdom of God. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say 
don't get tied up in the kingdom of this world. I have to ask myself, am I tied up in the kingdom of this world? Like, am I too tied up in my stuff? Am I too tied up in the things that are around me? My wife and I, we, we give incredibly radically, I believe, sacrificially. Like, it costs us to give in the way that we give. And that's not to pat ourselves on the back. We love to do it. We don't even think twice about it. We, we just do it that way. We don't have a ton, but God has blessed us, and he's, what he's given to us in our hands, we just use it for his kingdom and, and for others around us. And so we, we use it for the church. We support the church significantly. We support others, different ministries, different individuals who are doing all sorts of different kinds of, of work because we believe that God has given us what we have for his kingdom. Now, yes, we take care of our family. Scripture also teaches that if a person doesn't take care of his family, he's worse than an infidel. So I take care of my family, all right? It means i got to have a budget, all right? got to know what's coming in. i got to know what's going out. i got to say no every now and then. I can say we can't do that. We can't do that because we actually have to provide for you. The refrigerator that we got in the kitchen, we need to put food in it, all right, because I've got kids. I need to feed them. So I do have to take care of my family. But I recognize that everything, my family, my resource, everything that God has given me exists for his kingdom and for his glory. So can I ask you this question today? What has God put in your hands? I know that some of y'all today, you're like, you're like dead broke. You're like, God didn't give me nothing in my hands right now. I'm with you. I feel you. Maybe we can help you. What has God put in your What has God put in your hands? And what is God calling you to lay at His feet? What is God calling you to lay at His feet? Um, y'all, I'm going to ask you in the future. I'm going to be calling you. I'm going to be compelling you to give financially, significantly to the mission of God and to our church for the things that God has ahead of us. I don't know everything that God has planned ahead of us, but I know that God has a bright future for us. I know that God wants us to change the city. I know that God has significant things that he wants to do, and I'm going to be asking you without reservation to give significantly to the kingdom of God. Is your life set up in such a way where you can actually participate significantly in the kingdom of God? Or is it all tied up in who knows what? What is it tied up in? God blesses us not primarily to increase our standard of living, but to increase our standard of giving. Let me close with this. One of the most encouraging ways that I see this play out in our church, I just want you all to know, by the way, this isn't like a sermon to try to get you to be generous, by the way. Uh, we have an incredibly generous church. Um, I may have told you this a few months ago. I serve on a board that's in North Carolina that's a part of a church thing. Um, I'm sitting at this board meeting in a small committee. They're talking about um, churches, and I'm the youngest guy in the room at this board meeting in this subcommittee room that's sitting at the table. I'm the youngest pastor that's in the room, and there are some things that are being said that seem to be like passive-aggressive statements to the younger generation. These young folk, they don't give anymore. They just not like what we used to do. And, and this and, and I'm like picking up on like, okay, what? They're, I'm like picking up on kind of what they're, they're, they're dropping. And um, so I just pipe up and say after a couple of minutes, I'm like, hey, just for context sake, I'm not exactly sure, you know, what might be happening. But just, just for reference sake, um, we're a new church. We're in Wilmington. I pastor the Bridge Church. Um, really, really cool church. Really awesome church. It's an amazing church. It's the best church in the world. I love it's an amazing church. And, and I say, um, I, say um, I, I basically say, here, here's kind of what our Sunday attendance numbers are, relatively speaking. This is what our annual budget is. The guy that's the chair of the committee goes, whoa. He goes, wow. He's like, that's about twice what the average giving is in most of the churches that are a part of our group. 
And I'm like, oh, that's great. I didn't even know that. That's awesome. I guess we're doing pretty good. I guess we're doing okay, you know? Here's the thing. We're doing, we're doing good, y'all. We're, I love that we are a generous. I love that we get to partner with J.C. Rowe. I love that we just get to cut a check from Christmas for the city to J.C. Rowe and say, do whatever you can with that for God's sake. I love that. I love that. And so here's, here's what I'm trying to say. I want you to be rooted in the kingdom of God. I want you to see our commonality as first above capitalism. I'm not saying capitalism is like the end of the world and it's evil and we should just throw it. I'm, not say, I'm saying that's the kingdom of this. That's what they do in the kingdom of this world. I'm just saying what we do in the kingdom of God. Right? This is how we function in the kingdom of God. We give of what we have for, the, for one another because we're one because we share things in common. I remember when I was in seminary. I said I was going to close. I'll close with this. I remember when I was in seminary. Um, I'm sorry, preacher today. Um, Chris preached last Sunday, and so I'm trying to make up for two weeks. Um, I remember when I was in a seminary, I was, uh, didn't hardly have any money. I was single at the time, um, working a couple part-time jobs. Um, one of my part-time jobs was in a warehouse that didn't have windows, and I just put in the headphones for like eight hours straight. It was miserable. Um, and I remember, I remember uh, really struggling at different seasons, trying to to work a few jobs, do seminary full-time, and work on my master's degree and all this, and it was a little crazy, and different seasons would happen, and like car maintenance and all this stuff, and I remember I was in this group, I was in this community group that was that was there uh, in, in seminary in the church that I was a part of, and I just think like one week I said like, yeah, man, it's just, it's just, yeah, I'm just struggling, I got this that's going on, and this that's going on, and um, I wasn't like looking for anything, I was just like, y'all can pray for me. Uh, after that, um, a few days after that, one of the couples in the group that was just a few years older than I was, uh, they came to me and they said, hey, Ethan, we know that you're struggling, you're in a tough situation, and so we just wanted to give this to you to try to help in, in this season of your life, and I opened the envelope, there's like 200 bucks in there, and I'm like, holy freaking cow, that's like, I thought this happened, I thought like God sent a bird that dropped checks on your front doorstep that's like, but no, you gave this uh, to me. And I was fundamentally changed. It changed the game for me. Because I recognized that they couldn't live in luxury while they saw me operate not in luxury, in need, in a place of need. Church, we're one together. We're one, whether you like it or not. Whether you like the person that's sitting beside you or not, we're one. We've got to operate like one. Amen?